Distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Library of Australia. I'm Candice Cap, Manager of Sales and Promotion at the National Library here. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank the elders, past and present, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call home. I'm delighted to see so many faces here tonight to uh, hear from David Haskell as he talks about his Pulitzer Prize-nominated book, The Songs of Trees, Stories from Nature's Great Connectors. I think it's fair to say that David may have one of the best jobs in the world. What better way to spend your time than developing a better understanding of trees, forming a deeper relationship with nature and uncovering the relationships that trees have with each other. Through his exploration of the biological networks that surround all species, including humans and trees, in his writing, David enriches our understanding of biology, human nature and ethics. David is a professor of biology and environmental studies at the University of the South in Tennessee. He is also a Guggenheim Fellow. His book, The Forest Unseen, in 2012, won the 2014 Best Book Award from the National Academies, the National Outdoor Book Award and the Reed Environmental Writing Award. It is a great privilege to have David here with us tonight. Joining us for the conversation this evening is Genevieve Jacobs. Genevieve is well known to Canberra audiences as a presenter on Triple Six ABC Canberra and she is, of course, a much-loved friend of the National Library. Please join me in welcoming David Haskell and Genevieve Jacobs. Thank you so much, Candice. It's lovely to be here, lovely to see so many familiar faces. I feel like I've reached that point in my career on the radio where I go into these rooms and I, I know about a third of you. That's a lovely, lovely thing for me as the conversation begins. And wonderful to be here with David, with whom I had the, the privilege of a chat on the radio today. I think of him as someone who leaps deftly between genres and across expectations because this is a really magical book. It's a, a lyrical, gorgeous piece of poetry grounded very firmly in good, solid science and that makes it a very special thing, I think, even within the world of science writing. It's a, a thing of beauty and a thing of learning at the same time. I'm going to talk to David for about 35, 40 minutes or so and then we'll turn it over to you. Now, because this is being recorded, I would ask you to just wait until the roving microphone gets to you. Catch my eye, put your hand up and we'll get the roving microphone to you. And uh, I think we're in for an absolutely fascinating conversation. So let's begin. David, good evening to you. Good evening. It's a delight to be here. <laughs> I want you to begin by telling us when you first started looking at trees and thinking about trees. Observation is such a fundamental facet of science, but, but when did the looking begin for you? I think as a child, and this is an experience many of us have had, of course, of, of having a favourite tree in, in the backyard that we like to climb up and, and sit in or, or listen to and poke around in. Um, as a kid, I didn't have any particular focused way of uh, making my observations. In fact, they were anything but focused. I love to just explore and poke around, and not just with trees, but in the little pond at the end of the garden, you know, pull the algae out and see what kind of creatures were, were living in there. And that sense of curiosity and, and desire to explore the lives of other species then led me to study 
biology in college and then through into, uh, into more advanced study. And, and then as, as a teacher, my hope is to convey some of that excitement of discovery and of interaction with other species to students who, for whom that's perhaps something that they've developed just a little bit or that has not been part of their own trajectory up to that point. There are plenty of students who don't have the, uh, those opportunities available to them in their childhood and they want to open those doors a little bit. I, I think that many people don't quite connect the idea of looking in a scientific sense with the other kind of looking that you invite us to do, which is to encounter trees, to encounter the natural world with all one's senses, to, to embrace it very fully. So I'm curious about how you developed that way of paying what you call repeated sensory attention to trees. Yes, and there, and there are two parts to that. One is the sensory attention, which is opening the senses to that particular place at that moment and hopefully leaving behind some preconceptions of, you know, what am I going to smell here? What am I going to see or hear at this, this spot? Well, we can predict some of that, but often those predictions then focus us and turn us away from the other things that are happening at that, at that moment. So opening the senses is part of it, and then doing that at a particular tree or a particular patch of forest again and again and again over months and, and then over years is the other I think the other really important part of this practice, because the place, of course, changes. My perceptions of it change. Perhaps, I hope, my understanding of the stories at that place mature uh, just a little bit. And I change in, in relation to it. Of course, you know, our, our uh, positions, intellectual positions, our emotional state, uh, how, how we, what, what we're filtering in to our bodies and, and what we're excluding, all these change moment by moment, let alone over years. So the open senses and the repeated attention are the two things that I tried to do in my practice, um, writing, you know, preparing to write, and also as, as a teacher, what I tried to offer my students. And I came to that conviction through, through the, the conviction that that's an important path forward through a number of different avenues. One is, as a scientist, of course, one has to make detailed observations, and often those are very organized, particularly in the later stages of science, when one has a hypothesis. The organization is a data sheet or an Excel spreadsheet or something to, to gather a particular series of observation on one place and time or one process. Uh, but before that organization in science, there's curiosity. We're going into the world and saying, well, oh, I, I hadn't noticed that before. Or here's a paper that someone wrote that, that made me think about this bird or this plant or this human interaction in a different way. And so the process of opening, I think, is really important to creativity in the sciences and, and of course, in, in many other uh, fields of, of human knowledge and, and, and striving and, and uh, uh, innovation. So the scientific roots are part of the practice. And then there's also a sort of meditative strand that... All of the religious and philosophical traditions that I'm aware of have, have a practice of encouraging people to sit and be with something over and over again, letting go of judgment. That might be the breath, or it might be gazing on a sacred icon or being in a particular place. Those practices take different forms, they're, they're um, explained using very different languages, but they all have at their, their core the notion that this is something that will help us to understand so I wanted to draw together that meditative, con contemplative component with the scientific understanding and with 
my uh, love of, of natural history, of, of understanding the, some of the details of the lives of creatures, put all that together in, in a single project where instead of these being separate things in my life and the work that I do, allow them to converge and, and see what happens. I just want to give you a sense of what this is like for those who haven't had a chance to come to grips with the book. And uh, David, I just want you to read perhaps the first paragraph on the first page. And this relates to the forests of Ecuador, the Amazonian mm -hmm. forests of Ecuador, and in particular to the Sabo tree, which is sacred to the Waroni people of the Amazon. And just that first paragraph. So, yes, yeah, so the chapter begins with Sabo near the Tiputini River in Ecuador, and it gives a lat long, so you know, you can look it up in Google Maps. Moss has taken flight, lifting itself on wings so thin that light barely notices as it passes through. The sun leaves not a color, but a suggestion. Leaflets spread, and the moss plants soar on long strands. A fibrous anchor tethers each flyer to the swarm of fungi and algae that coats every tree branch. Unlike their crouched and bowed relatives in the rest of the world, these mosses live where water has no skin, no boundary. Here, air is water. Mosses grow like filamentous seaweeds in an open ocean. <laughs> Beautiful, isn't it? Exquisite. And the, the next sentence is, the forest presses its mouth to every creature and exhales. <laughs> It was one of the most marvellous lines I've read in quite some time. <laughs> you, you've anchored this around the Sabo tree, and it's mm -hmm. important to begin here because embodied in this tree is one of the theories that courses through this book, and that is that we're rather prone to seeing the tree alone as a distinct entity, but it's mm -hmm. not. It is an indivisible part of a web of life that surrounds us, and the, the Sabo is a brilliant example of that. Yes, the Sabo tree is a, I mean, it's a giant in the rainforest, so this is the most one of the most biologically diverse places on the face of the earth. In fact, according to some analyses, the most biodiverse place. And, and this tree seems to be an exemplar of individuality, just standing there with its big trunk towering over, over all the other trees there. And yet, that individuality is an illusion. It turns out that tree is made from relationships. It's not just connected to other creatures, it's made from those connections. And what I mean by that is if the connections inside its leaves, inside its roots, its connections between it and other species, if those connections end, if they're severed for some reason, the tree's life ends. So life emerges both in the long-term sense of evolution and ecology, but also in the moment-by-moment -moment biochemical, microbiological sense, life emerges from and is sustained by relationship. And the sabo is a great example of this because you cannot miss the lesson there because the tree is covered in bromeliads and orchids and monkeys and birds and, and little films of algae. You can barely see the tree because of the network that's hugging it and, and surrounding it and sometimes bringing, bringing big branches down to the, to the forest floor below because of the weight of other creatures there. This is true also for other trees, uh, and it's also true for, for our own, own bodies in, in many ways, and yet this, 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 that's not so obvious. I started the book with the Sabo because it was such a great example, and such an example filled with sensory exuberance. I mean, the smells and the, and the, the variegations of light and the, 
The sounds in this place are just extraordinary. Tell me what happens when you listen to trees, because this is one of the premises of this exploration, that you will literally plug sensors into trees and don headphones, mm -hmm. and whether it's somewhere like Ecuador or Japan or, or Georgia or Tennessee or indeed the Upper West Side of Manhattan, mm -hmm. you listen to the trees. What are you listening for? Yeah, so the, the listening happens at several levels. One is the most obvious level of just, and, and in fact this is the main practice, just show up to the tree, sit down and <laughs> shut up for a change, and just listen. What, what is the sound of the wind in this tree? How does the rain sound as it's falling through the tree's leaves? And how is that sound different from the sound earlier in the year or in, 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 some, other, in some other season? And what do those sounds tell us about the life of the tree and the life of, of its community? Those sounds are also the sounds of insects and of uh, birds. And they're also the process of listening is about listening to human voices. So all of these trees, and one of the themes sort of that ties the book together, I think, is that wherever I went, whether it was in a seemingly remote forest or in the middle of the city, these people's lives and trees' lives were completely intertwined, sometimes in obvious ways, sometimes in more unexpected ways. And so listening to a tree also means listening to the voices in the human community of people whose lives are very closely connected to the tree, whether those people are farmers or foresters or uh, indigenous people whose lives have been connected with the tree over thousands of years, or city dwellers who've just moved to the city or who've lived there for a while, who are interacting with trees on, on, the, on the street. So the listening is partly listening to the sounds of the tree as we would think of tree sounds you know, with, with wind and leaves and rain. Some of it is listening to people. And then there is also some putting some microphones and sensors onto trees so I can detect the ultrasonic pops and fizzles that happen in the twigs and branches of trees as they grow and as drought strikes them. There's a little bit of an inner life happening there that reveals a dynamism, I mean, literally the minute-by-minute -minute changes happening within the tree that we can't discern with our ears because our ears cut off their, their ability to hear at, at high frequencies. These are ultrasonic sounds. And then subsonic sounds, very slow swayings and rumbles that one can detect either by putting a little accelerometer onto a tree or even just by putting our hands against the tree. If you put your hand or even a, a cone, um, put your ear to the, to the tree and, and listen or feel, listen with your fingertips, you can feel the movement of the tree and if there are, there are particularly low-frequency sounds, you can detect them through the, detect, through the, um, the dozens or maybe a dozen different nerve types that are in our hands that mostly we, we don't use for hearing, at least not consciously, but we can apply them uh, to our friends of the trees. One of the most intriguing arguments that you make about this, and it's drawn a lot of attention as this book has become very successful, is that the trees are, I'm hesitating to say sentient beings, but they're making a, a constant series of complex decisions every second, every microsecond. They are monitoring and responding to their environment mm -hmm. at multiple, multiple levels at all times. There's a huge level of complexity going on. And your suggestion is that we can look at this as, as a kind of intelligence. Yes, absolutely. I think that's indisputable that trees have a, a, a kind of intelligence, as does the forest itself, the forest community. 
And what, what I mean by that is not an intelligence that's formed in the same way as human intelligence is from a series of interacting nerves. Those nerves are interacting with other species. The gut bacteria on our skin and in our guts affect the texture of our thoughts in ways that we're only starting to understand. But our, our thoughts are, of course, dominated by a, a, a nervous system. The tree's thoughts, and by thoughts I mean their memories, both short-term memories second by second and memories over seasons and years, the decisions that they make about how to grow, how to respond to the chemical signals of bacteria and fungi around them, how to sense their environment, how to smell the odor coming from other trees and then either respond or not respond. These are all ways in which the tree is sensing its environment, making decisions, and then reaching out to communicate. Uh, there's also creativity. The tree is making uh, decisions that change day by day and over the seasons in order to, to allow its body to flow into the environment in, in the best way possible. So these are all things that when we do them, with our nervous system, we call this thought and intelligence and mind. I think this, we can see those same phenomena happening in trees. And if we want to have a parsimony of language, we could use those same terms to refer to happen, what's happening in the tree. But the tree's intelligence is much more diffuse. Ours is all held up and knotted together in a cranium. The tree is, suffuses these decisions throughout its body. And in fact, some of those memories and decisions and sense, um, acts of uh, sensing the environment are happening in relation to other creatures. So the root, root tips are haloed by bacteria and fungi, and those fungi and bacteria are communicating at a genetic level. And those decisions, therefore, are made in relationship to other species. So some of the intelligence of a tree is, in fact, outsourced, if you like, into the community. Just as the same is true for our own, we, it's, our intelligence is also present in the ethereal world of culture. You know, what do, how do I know the things I know? Partly through direct observation, but mostly through conversation with other people. If the tree exists in this extraordinarily complex network of life, that goes beyond the boundaries of life itself. It transcends what we understand of death. And in many senses, there's, there's a story, a, a chapter about a green ash, your observation of a green ash in death rather than in life. And I'd love you to talk me through the way that you've understood that process as being part of the greater web of life itself. Yeah, so this is a tree that, that taught me a great deal. It's an enormous great ash tree that fell near uh, my home in Tennessee. So an a great big log, it, it, it fell in, in a windstorm. Um, it had been attacked by fungi and weakened a little bit, uh, but it was the windstorm that toppled it. And I thought, well, this will be interesting to see how this tree starts to decompose, but it will be a rather quiet process, not much going to happen here. And every single time I go to this tree, there's some new creature making use of this fallen log in some way or another. So this is the tree that startled me the most for the amount of life that is gathered in and on and around the fallen body of the tree. And it, in fact, its afterlife is just as rich and just as full of connections as the life before its death, if you like. Well, I, I read it and I thought, is it alive or dead? It's, it's really hard mm -hmm. to make that finite line because the tree in death is absolutely in life. Absolutely, and, and this is, and the, you know, the book gives all sorts of examples of this. The insects that show up, the minute the tree falls, there are insects that sniff 
the, the smell of rent wood and broken bark and show up and lay their eggs. Uh, they then bring other creatures with them and then the others follow on top of that and the mammals use it to, to travel from one part of the forest to another and they, they let, put their scat on top of it. And the scat has seeds and the seeds then colonize the tree trunk and so all these uh, wonderful ecological stories. And indeed, the boundary between life and death for, the, for a big tree is not very clear at all. Eventually, of course, that tree's both the energy that's embodied in the log and all the material, all the atoms that are present there, and all the information that's present in that tree, all that it knows from, from being in that place, all of that will eventually disappear and suffuse into the forest into a different form. So there is a process of dying. It's just very drawn out, and that death is bringing about new life in the forest in a way that the tree has, does not control. When it was standing, it controlled many of the relationships it was involved with. Now, that control has been vastly decentralized, but there's still a network of life centered on the tree. And, and interestingly, of course, if we consider the, the vast environmental implications of what you're saying, coal is petrified carbon. Mm -hmm. The very coal-burning process which might destroy our mm -hmm. ecosystems is cannibalizing the resource of the trees mm -hmm. in an, a millennial sense. Yeah, so uh, you know, human culture has been tied up with burning wood for ever since the get-go, ever since we started becoming humans, and even before the human species evolved, taking pieces of broken wood, burning them to cook our food, and then to provide a place for us to gather around and tell stories and let our imaginations flow. It turns out the sound of burning wood unlocks something in the human mind and in human culture that allows us to be human to be that creative species that loves conversation. And so we're reenacting that. In some way, we should have a little burning piece of wood out here. <laughs> and, and then that got uh, um, industrialized, of course. And then we discovered these buried stores of, of trees below the ground. We call them coal, fossilized uh, photosynthetic sunlight that we're now releasing, of course, at a very rapid rate back to the environment. But still, we're in some ways reliving that initial relationship to trees, which is our life, and particularly our social life, our culture, is powered through a relationship with trees moving from one form to another. And in, in the case of coal, they are indeed very long-buried trees. We, of course, we face some very important decisions about what to do with coal, but it, of course it's not an infinite resource. At some point, we will need to renegotiate our relationship back to dealing with living trees uh, because the coal will either run out or we'll decide to leave some of it buried in the ground. But I suspect that trees will still be at the heart of much human social interaction as long as we're on this planet. Even a book, you know, we, how do we connect to other people's thoughts? It's through flattened sheets of cellulose. This is a tree connecting us one to another. When we're listening to music, what's the mediator there? It's wood in a violin or in, in, in a piano. Uh, so, so we're connecting one to another in all these different ways, and trees are often there at the, at the heart. Let's talk then a little more about the level of threat that we pose to trees. And in doing so, the biosphere, how much significance there is in the way that we are harvesting and using trees and you, you speak about our capacity now to monitor this on a global scale, to have a, a very real understanding of where the trees are fading, mm -hmm. of how little they ebb back again, and how critically that's changing mm -hmm. the face of the planet. Yes, and I think, I mean, so human, 
uh, society formed in relationship to trees, and I think that's a very important relationship and one that we need to, to do well. So to use wood well, to use paper well, these are things that we shouldn't be turning our backs on. We should be embracing good work in that realm. Uh, the statistics on how we are relating to forests, though, are indicating we're not doing a, a, an astounding job of that, at least in some, some places. In the first dozen years of the millennium, we lost... 2.3 million square kilometers of forest, but eight, and only 800,000 regrew. So that's not a very good balance sheet. And some of that is indeed from, from, from logging. Some of it, though, is from, uh, from climate change and from fires and th uh, processes that are moving into forests uh, in a way that, regardless of how we're using wood or not, the forest is uh, burning on a cycle, say, in the boreal forest across... Uh, large parts of uh, Russia and, uh, and Canada, the boreal forest is burning away and not regrowing because the climate regime has shifted to a point where climate, um, excuse me, fire cycles have resulted in a denudation of the, of the landscape and trees that don't have the opportunity to come back there. And I think good forestry, good land management, good ecology are part of what we need to bring back those forests that are really struggling. Do you think that that's a consequence, as we said earlier, of us seeing trees as distinct objects rather than part of a network of life? I, I think that's part of it. That the notion that, uh, that life is a series of objects, of atoms, if you like, and also the notion that we are separate from it and somehow above from it, of course, then leads to, to an attitude that is, let's use it up and throw it away, there'll always be some more, rather than an attitude of belonging, how can we belong within this community of life and, and work with our cousins, the trees? I mean, literally, they're our blood kin. Go back a billion, billion and a half years, there was a cell that split. Some of those daughter cells became us and some became trees. It's a sort of crazy thought, but that is ultimately what Darwinism is, is showing us, that we are actually kin to these other creatures. And all other creatures make their lives by using, eating other species, using them, manipulating uh, environments. We need to do that. There are so many of us on the planet with such large appetites that we, the, the ethical question is how do we do it well? Both for the benefit of ourselves and those humans who will come after us, but also for the benefit of the rest of the community of life. And the answers to these questions depend so much on the particularities of individual situations. But if our response to those questions does not involve listening to the land, we're going to come up with some rather distorted views of what could work for us. There are other more subtle threats. Um, an old friend who's a devoted silviculturist emailed me this afternoon in preparation for this, and he said, a major threat to the mightiest trees that we have left can be the people who love trees. So cheap air travel, people with complex soles in their shoes mm -hmm. mean that very, very destructive um, things like Phytophthora, sudden mm -hmm. oak death, things that can be transplanted from California to Canberra in a day. Yep. And my friend Peter said the magnificent cowries in New Zealand, for example, are being destroyed by Phytophthora, which probably arrived on hiking boots. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the kind of society we have constructed is antithetical, even when we love those trees with a passion. Yes, so it's about it's a movement of people mm -hmm. from one continent to another, which of course is occurring at a vastly higher rate than it has ever happened before. Is move, it's moving hiking boots, it's also moving packing crates 
and great big shipping containers full of all sorts of material that's usually packed up with at least some wood-based products. All of that movement is moving diseases like Phytophthora, insects from one continent to another. And certainly in, in North America, the, the forests that I know best, some of the most immediate threats are species arrive from other continents. An insect that arrives or a fungus that arrives and just takes out an entire tree species or 99.9% .9 of that tree species. So indeed, human movement around the world is in some ways recreating Pangaea, the great one supercontinent, with a resulting decrease in biological diversity, a homogenization of diversity. And knowing that, then, our task is to say, how, given that things are moving around the world, we're not going to stop all the shipping containers moving up from Australia to Asia or from, uh, from Asia to North America and Europe and so forth, how do we have practices in place that minimize the risk of one species arriving on another continent and wreaking havoc. Ultimately, it's going to involve less movement. But given that we are a mobile species, we've always been a mobile. So this is why, how we colonized all continents except sub-Saharan Africa, where human species evolved. We've spread over the entire globe because we have this curiosity about what's over that hill. And we want to go there, or sometimes... Maybe it's not curiosity. We can't stand what's on this side of the hill, so we gotta, we're going to go over there. Uh, regardless, we, whether it's on foot or in a plane or in a cargo ship, we were very, we've been a mobile species for hundreds of thousands of years. And in fact, um, the homo species that came before homo sapiens were also very mobile and, and, and moved across much of the, uh, the, at least the Asian subcontinent from, uh, from Africa. So if we want to care for forests, if we want to care for uh, grasslands, uh, other, other ecosystems, we need to slow that movement. And, it, and there are ways we can do this. We don't have to be using untreated packing material taken straight from Asian forests, taking it and dumping it in the, on the east coast of the United States, which is where most of the insect species that have, that have ravaged the, east, the forest in the eastern U.S., uh, have come from. I don't know which are the particular threats uh, in, you know, in Canberra right here, but I would imagine they are also from another continent, also arrived through various routes having to do with human trade and the desire for humans to meet other people and be in conversation. There's a lot of good in movement. Mm -hmm. The question is, how can we have that good without leaving a trail of destruction behind? Well, perhaps one of the ways that we enhance that is by understanding the way that you've chosen to, to communicate is extraordinarily lyrical. It's very fluid but very precise, as I suggested at the beginning. I wonder how your form of science communication, of writing poetry, is viewed by those who come from both sides of that equation. Mm -hmm. How comfortable people feel with the way you've chosen to communicate. Yes, yeah, so, so, you know, the books are written for people who are curious about human relationship with trees or how forests work and so forth. So the book is not written for specialists in my discipline within the academy. And my hope was to take some of those amazing stories, to integrate them with my experience and stories from people that I meet on my travels and then offer them for, for, reader, for readers who are, who are curious about the world and, and our relation with other species. Uh, within the literary community, people have been... Um, surprisingly delighted by that. It's sort of refreshing to perhaps hear some stories that are not all focused on us. Um, I love reading novels and nonfiction works that, that are centered on human culture, but we live in a world that's 
has all sorts of fascinating tales of other species. So telling those, I think, is some of my colleagues in the English department and so forth love reading, taking a break from reading student essays about their process of self-discovery uh, <laughs> and uh, reading about salamanders or, or trees. You know, in the, in the scientific community, there, there's, I think, an increasing uh, recognition that there is a role for taking stories from you know, obscure scientific uh, journals, uh, wrapping them up in narrative of place, and then and offering them out in, into the world, not as a, as a replication of that scientific process, but a way of sharing it. And I think uh, most of my colleagues are happy to have that happen, particularly if I don't get it wrong. Uh, <laughs> and, and of course, that's what I spend a lot of time doing, talking to people and reading papers to make sure what I'm presenting is uh, as, as close to our current understanding of things as possible. In 10 years, our understanding will evolve, of course. And then there are people who, uh, who say, well, you know, when you stop doing science and, and particularly publishing lots of peer-reviewed papers, you've taken the soft route out because you, you, know, you aren't good enough to, to hold up your head within the scientific community. And I think that's an absurd notion um, that there are multiple ways of, of querying the world, puzzling over the world. And, and one of the, particularly in this, this second book, one of the things I've tried to do is ask how all this scientific knowledge interacts with ethics, with environmental ethics. We seem we have two parallel tracks of thought, and, and certainly there are interesting conversations that have happened over the years there, but I want to put these together and say this scientific work matters, and it also provide, poses some rather difficult ethical questions. So let's put these together in a way that I hope is a contribution to, to that particular conversation. Mm -hmm. and, and I think in Western thought we are so hopelessly committed to this idea of binaries, mm -hmm. and it seems so hard to break out of our, our silos of thought to, to leap across the genres, across the, the, the fields of study and knowledge, and yet for other cultures, and to, to take us back to Ecuador, you describe the spirituality of the Waroni as being earthbound and earth-centred and radiating out from that, but encompassing everything around it. Yes, and with, you know, so, uh, the human body is an integrated being. Mm. You know, we don't have an art department over here, biology here and chemistry there. No, we just are what we are. We're all wrapped up together in complicated ways. And I think... Uh, um, epistemology, our, our ethics, um, or to, to reflect that. And you know, I think that, that is present within the Western tradition. There's a notion that, that disciplines should be in conversation with each other and um, the too much subdividing and pigeonholing ultimately is not going to be a good thing. It's good to go deep into some seams, but then you have to come up to the surface to look around and see how what you're doing is related to others. But of course, that way of being for people who are in the forest, and the Warani have lived in the forest for, for thousands of years, you don't have the option of just being in your narrow way of thinking and then coming up once every 10 years because you won't be able to eat. You won't, be, you won't you, you, the, your life will not be possible. And so there, the, the sort of interdisciplinary nature of life, if you like, is a necessity uh, because Food is derived day by day from the forest, uh, not by a huge fossil fuel subsidy. You know, agriculture is somewhere else, and I only think about it you know, for two half-hour periods a day at lunch and dinner, open the fridge, and there it is. No, you have to be in relation with these species, integrating all your senses, your knowledge, and your conversation with the community every day. And, and I think we're at a time now where we need to do that 
uh, for ourselves as, in small communities, but also at a national, international level, because we're in a forested world and a world that is also calling on us to say, you're not going to be around here for too much longer unless you sort out how are you going to feed yourself, clothe yourself, get on with your neighbors, these questions that humans have been dealing with for hundreds of thousands of years. How are we going to do that on a global scale? Let's turn over to you for questions, and I feel absolutely certain that you have some. Uh, we're just going to get the microphone, so if you would like to put up your hand, um, we'll catch my eye and um, turn the conversation over to the floor. And the first question will be down here. If you just, uh, yeah, just over here. Uh, David, you uh, talk superbly about listening to trees. Is there any sense in which you can take your questions to trees and get answers? <laughs> I, you know, I think it depends on the question. That's, that's a great <laughs> thought. Um, my process has, been tr has mostly been to try not to bring a question to the tree, but say, <laughs> if I'm going to try to understand how people and trees are, are related to one another on a street corner in Manhattan or in an olive grove in, in the West Bank or in Jerusalem, is to go that place... You know, having read up, of course, a lot about it and, and talk to people there, but to, to listen and say, well, what are the points of tension? What is the narrative here as it centers on the tree? And then let the questions come from that. So I find that I have this process of listening stimulates hundreds of questions from the place. And then I pose those questions to people, to the scientific literature, to myself, and then coming back to the tree with a, with a focused set of uh, you know, curiosity. Well, how does the olive tree actually deal with drought? What am I seeing in July that I didn't see in November mm -hmm. in its leaves? And so in some ways, that's bringing the question back. There's an asymmetry, of course, when we form human friendships and, and engage in human conversation. We're mostly speaking the same language, although we live in um, quite different uh, narratives. Uh, so we think we're hearing each other more than I think we actually are. Um, but with the tree, that asymmetry is enormous, of course, because I listen in a particular way and understand the world through a human way. And the tree is not, as far as I'm aware, responding to me from its diffuse intelligence. It is interacting with me. I'm affecting the tree in various ways. I bring memories away from the tree. I bring a molecular connection to the tree by inhaling its... Uh, its aromatic uh, hydrocarbons and so forth that are coming out of its leaves. And, and I'm leaving my imprint on, on the tree, you know, my microbiological imprint, chemical imprint, and the imprint of my presence ecologically there. So there is a dialogue, but it's happening in languages that are um, untranslatable at present. And so I'm trying to listen through some of that, but it's a very, Im very imperfect conversation. I think the tree might be challenging our notions of human primacy. The tree doesn't care about us nearly as much as we might imagine it does. Uh, who's got another question? Hands up. Um, yep, down here. Thank you both for a very interesting discussion. Um, David, I'll take you back to the green ash that fell. You talked about the um, information that was available to all of the other creatures. What about what sort of information is available back to the other trees? Uh, and is it the near neighbours or does that spread further? And is any of that information translated as learnings as to what's happened or what's happening? Yeah, so that's a good question. So the tree, 
over its lifetime, I think there's a great deal of loss that happens. So the tree over its lifetime, in order to live to be, say, 200 years old, which is probably roughly how, how old this tree was, that tree has to live well within that place. In other words, understand the, you know, the physical conditions over many seasons, get along with biological neighbors, or at least hold off the pathogens for, for a while, uh, communicate with other trees through, through root systems, and that's sharing information and material with, with other trees. And so when that tree dies and those, many of those connections cease to exist, that un particular understanding of that point in the forest then disappears, that information is lost. But new information comes to being because other species are drawn to that place to use the tree as a, as a place to, to live and for them to form their own understanding. Now, we know so little about how, say, the mycorrhizal network, which is the underground fungal network that connects trees, and the above-ground chemical network that's connecting trees. We know that information and material is flowing among trees. Sometimes that flow is asymmetrical, older trees sending material out to younger ones, at least in some cases. Um, but how all that plays out in the complexity of a forest is we just do not know. It's like we're just hearing the first glimmering, the first little signs of, oh, there's a great conversation happening here that we had no idea about. And when I was an undergrad, the, the, the view of a forest was it was a fundamentally competitive place. And it's, it is very competitive in many ways. Trees competing with each other for light and nutrients. But it's also enormously networked in a cooperative way. And that is a, a, a shift in our understanding that's completely shaking up plant ecology. And I, th I think now there are a lot of sort of stories being projected onto that. Oh, the forest is a place of infinite cooperation and we have the, the grandmother trees nurturing the youngsters and so on. And I think a lot of that is um, going a little too far because there's also everything we know about other biological networks indicates that there are going to be tensions there. There are going to be exploiters and parasites as well as cooperators. And what evolution does is, is negotiate through that so the trees find their way through, just like the hu human social networks, there is a lot of beauty and joy and cooperation and a lot of people who will rob you blind at give, given half a chance. The same is true in the rest of, of biology. And you know, the question of, sort of um, how we interpret this, in particular, I get uneasy when we have gendered explanations of this, say grandmother trees, in fact, trees are all hermaphrodites. Not all trees are hermaphrodites, but the trees that are being referred to are hermaphrodites, so they're grandmother-grandfather trees. And so they're imposing a binary gendered view on the forest that, in fact, what the forest is telling us is that many species, the notion of male and female in separate bodies is, doesn't work. And so in these stories that we tell, I think we need to be really difficult about, diff careful about translating this difficult science into... Um, narratives, and those narratives have the potential to bring with them baggage that is not helpful in other realms. And I think that's, I think that's particularly true around sexuality and gender uh, right now as we discuss ecology and other species. And of course, that's an issue that uh, is all over the headlines of the newspapers, <laughs> like right now here. And of course, it's been a very important issue in the US and has is still very actively debated. Well, one of the things that we don't understand profoundly is the mycorrhizal role. The, the mm -hmm. role of, of, of fungi is almost completely unknown in how a forest functions, and yet it's probably absolutely vital, isn't it? 
It is absolutely vital. And in fact, if you break those networks, uh, say through application of the wrong herbicides, that you know you can wipe out the forest from from a patch of mountainside. And we're in the very early days. What's remarkable is that massive amounts of material are flowing from one tree to another. So photosynthesis in, in tree A can find its way over into tree B, and we've known that now for several decades. How that plays out in the network of the forest, don't know. In fact, what is the structure of the network in the forest? So if you were to draw a circuit diagram, this species of bacteria connected to this fungus and this tree... I know of no circuit diagram, if you like, or no complete mapping of the network of a forest, even at a very small scale. There are a few studies of bacterial species that, that get close. So we don't even know the nature of, of the, the connections, let alone how are those connections, do they flow both ways all the time, and, and how are those connections being played out? So it's, a, it's an enormously exciting time because we're about to learn an enormous amount about tree culture, if you like, tree communication and how that, that plays out over time. And I, I hope we will be cautious in telling tales of that because the forest is far more complex, I think, than we can possibly imagine or simplify in, 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 you know, in neat and tidy narratives. It's going to be messy, and it's going to involve a lot of brokenness and a lot of interconnection. <laughs> We've got time for a couple more questions. Just wonderful language, isn't it? Yes, here. Just right there. I have two questions. Um, when you talked about the intelligence of the cells in the trees in terms of responding to and reacting mm -hmm. to their environment... Does that bring to you a sense of similarity to what epigenetics is discovering about human cells and about our response to our environment that we get from our thoughts and our emotions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the epigenetics, the old way of thinking about genetics was we inherit our DNA from our parents and that's, what, that's the genetic blueprint and we make our bodies from that. And then the environment, the present day environment interacts with that. Epigenetics now, we now know that if, say, our great-grandparents experience some particular stressor, uh, that it changes and uh, that signal gets attached to the DNA, but in, not in a way that only lasts a few generations. And so information is flowing from the environment uh, down through the generations. And, and it's, it, um, yet that, that is part of the understanding of, of the environment. That, and it's not just true in, in plants. Yeah. I mean, it's very much true in, in uh, people. And, and other mammals, other, other vertebrates. And it's a memory of place and a memory of experience that flows down through the generations that in general would be adaptive because it helps creatures understand their environment, but only under a limited range of conditions. What we have now is an environment that's changing so rapidly that the memory from two generations ago may not make you well fitted to, to this present time. Uh, now... Um, how that... So, you know, I think of epigenetics as another kind of memory. You know, a, gen, a change in the genetic code is a memory that will be transmitted potentially forever. An epigenetic one is a memory, a short-term memory, uh, that one is born with, doesn't derive from the immediate environment, and, and potentially helps one adapt to place. My second question goes back to what you were talking about at the beginning in terms of you're listening to the tree and the communication that's happening. Um, as humans, we've built 
ever more complex instruments to communicate with, you know, from radio and television and mm -hmm. internet and Wi-Fi and so forth. But there is a, a belief that we, we have the ability to communicate in that way without those instruments if we actually learn to tune our own instrument. And I, I sort of sense almost that what you're doing is tuning your communication abilities at an energetic level to a higher level that allows you to, to communicate with the trees and, and that we all have that ability if we... Yeah, um, yeah I wouldn't say I'm at a high level or anything, um, but I, I do think that uh, as an educator and as someone who's, who's trying to pay attention and learn something from the world myself, that we need to learn how to turn on our bodily senses uh, we, we are in a, a world that requires us to shut them off so much because right? we're bombarded by manipulative uh, uh, messages all the time, either you know, very overt or much more covert messages. So we're surrounded by people trying to take our agency away from us. And we have to have evolved barriers to, to that. Then we also need, the more we have a necessity to shut down, we need... Uh, emotion in the other direction to open back up when it's appropriate. So it's not appropriate to sort of have a completely open-sensed uh, experience when one is surrounded by commercial messages and other sort of manipulations of, of the mind. And yet when, it, when with trees, and I would argue with other people, having the ability to, to hear and to be present for the texture of sound and its physicality as well as the meaning that is behind that is an enriching but also very important quality. So if we're going to listen to one another, we need this. And as scientists, as writers, as people trying to discern ethical paths, if we are only plugged in through the electronic networks, we're going to make decisions that are reflective of that world, which is ultimately a, a very human-centered world, world, an abstract world, rather than one that is rooted in the realities of lived experience which whether we believe it or not, we belong here in a very deep, physical, true way. And we're born with, with an ability to, to tap into much of that. I mean, there's much that bypasses our senses. But we have these amazing senses. Attending to them is it's a very simple act, but it's also very powerful. <laughs> Perhaps time for you. One more question down here. And... Pleased to be evening up the gender balance in the questions. Um, <laughs> most of your... I'm sorry, I haven't read your book yet. Um, but a lot of what you've been talking about has been about natural forests, and I'd just like to turn to plantations or planted forests. Um, you prob you've probably never been to Canberra when we had a wonderful plantation down the middle of Northbourne Avenue. I wonder what you would have said to the Chief Minister and others about cutting down those trees and how loudly the trees screamed as they were cut down. I'm sure I could hear them. And the other large area of uh, planted trees is the National Arboretum. And I just wondered if you could make some comments on both of those um, instances of how we are treating our trees. Yes. Um, <laughs> so the second half of the book, in fact deals with trees that are very much in the, in the built environment, so in, in cities of, of various kinds. Because um, I think those are very, very important um, relationships between people and trees, both for people and, and for the trees. Uh, 
Plantations, of course, take many different forms. There are, there are forestry tree plantations that, that have their role in some places. I think we've gone a little bit over the top, especially in the southern United States, sort of eradicating everything else from the landscape and just putting fast-growing trees in, I think, is uh, overstepping some boundaries. In built environments where people have very deep physical connections to trees and see trees every day, those trees become part of our network of friends, part of our, I mean, literally part of our social network uh, of bonds, and we have deep emotional bonds to them. And so when trees are taken out by, say, municipal government, uh, there may be, I don't know the particularities of that case, and so my comment would be, I can't comment on that because I don't know why. And so there, are, there are times when trees do indeed, indeed need to be taken out because there's a plan to do something else in that area, hopefully with more trees, with different trees. But anyone who does that in a city, believing that that will not have deep emotional uh, and social consequences, is, is living in a dream. And this plays out every place I've spoken. <laughs> uh, people have come up to me with these questions about why is the city cutting down these trees? Why were we not consulted? So part of urban forestry and caring for trees in an urban space is relationships with people. Yeah, it's partly about the trees, but it's also about inviting people into that process of how do we live in relation to these trees. Some of them are going to have to be cut down at some point, and partly in a city you have to cut some of the older ones down to stop them crushing traffic and pedestrians and so forth. That's a big issue in New York City. Uh, but if, if people in the neighborhood aren't, aren't involved, then... Uh, there's a sense in which we've broken the most important connection, which is between people who live in a place and the trees that live in a place. It turns out that helps the trees as well. In New York, if you plant a tree, just municipal workers come in and plant a tree and leave it, it has about a 50-50 chance of being alive in 10 years. If you plant that tree involving people on the, in the neighborhood and put a little tag on it saying, hi, I'm a London plane tree or whatever the species is, please don't let your dog poop here, give me a little water if it's a hot <laughs> summer, that tree's probability of survival goes up to nearly 100% over 10 years because it's been given a name, membership within human social network. It belongs, and people are looking out for it. So these are not abstract concepts. They're actually about life and death for the trees. And Arboretum, unfortunately, I haven't visited the Arboretum here, but there's such an amazing opportunity to form deep, relationships with trees over generations. Most arboretums were formed by people who are no longer with us, sometimes several generations back. We get to enjoy the fruits of, of their labor, learn a little bit. Now, most arboretums have, have an educational agenda, at least part of the agenda is educational. How can we identify trees? How bring kids in to, to start to learn and to enjoy some of the shade and some of the aesthetic, uh, the human aesthetic response to trees? So I've, uh, I personally have enjoyed uh, many wonderful hours in, in Arboreta. I think in the, now we're in a world of, of course, a claiming changing climate and a world in which invasive species are a problem. So one challenge that people say in the 19th century didn't have with Arboreta is thinking about, is it appropriate to plant this species here? Is it going to escape the walls and become a, a real problem in, for native communities and agricultural communities? And, of course, that's a, a, a dimension that people who manage these areas are very well aware of, but it's an additional complication. David, the, um, the avenue along which you drove to come into the city today was once a very long grey-green mm -hmm. stretch of trees, and it is no longer. No longer. Mm -hmm. 
And because I work for the National Broadcaster, I'm not going to express an opinion on that. <laughs> but I'm going to thank you myself and turn over to Candace. Thank you. Thank you ever so much to David and Genevieve. Thank you. Thank you. What a wonderful discussion we've had tonight. It's so interesting to think much more deeply about our connections to nature and the natural environment and ourselves and how we affect that. So it's been really wonderful to hear from you both. Thank you. So this does draw a closure to our conversation this evening. Um, if you have any more questions, I'm sure David would be happy to talk to you downstairs in the foyer where we have some refreshments and the book. I know you're dying to get a copy in your hot hands and read more, um, is available in the bookshop tonight at a special discounted price, 10% off the price. Um, and I'm sure David would be happy to sign a copy Absolutely. for you. Um, events such as this one rely on the support of Australia's publishers. I thank Black Ink Books for making it possible for David Haskell to visit the library and for supporting our events program throughout this year. And a final thank you to all of you for coming along this evening and um, being our audience as, as ever. We appreciate your attendance at our wonderful event program that we have here. So we shall see you in the foyer. Thank you. Thank you.